You ever like injure physically and you wake up in the morning and you, you check your body to see if the injury is still there? So I would do that with this emotional um, injury, you know? And um, all I know is I woke up one day and I checked it and it, it was still there, this cloud of despair. Yeah. And I, I kind of feel like I went into autopilot. I just, I remember packing my bag, I remember driving to my, or walking to my truck on campus. I remember calling a few friends and I was in a state of intensity that they, there was no way for them to help me over the phone. And I just remember putting my car in drive and the next thing I remember is pulling into this hospital. Hmm. To this day, I've probably got three different interpretations of, of what went down there. Yeah. And I know that other people have a day like that and it doesn't end like that. And I'm, yeah, that makes me really tender. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. And I'm your host, Hannah Warren. Hey, everyone. Today, I am so excited to introduce you to Jason Miller. Jason is an incredible leader, an advocate, a questioner, and a friend. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I was grateful for the way that he approached some really hard topics with nuance, curiosity, and intentionality. Lindsay and I got the chance to sit down with him and chat all about his new book, When the World Breaks. While Jason shares from his experience as the founder and pastor of South Bend City Church, This conversation and his new book are full of mystery and an invitation to all of us, no matter our faith background. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I loved how even just the title, When the World Breaks, feels so resonant for many of us. Okay, all of us, because the world feels broken, and our internal worlds feel difficult. Jason contends that the only way to find hope and healing is by turning into the internal experiences of our pain. I love this conversation, and I love the vulnerability with which Jason talked about his own story, um, his own mental health journey, and the impetus to writing this book all about paradox. So I know you're going to love this conversation. Meet our friend, Jason. So excited to be here today with Mackenzie and just someone that I really respect and admire and a friend, Jason Miller. Uh, Jason, I feel like, has been a voice for a lot of people, a guide for people sort of that are sort of looking for a new way to sort of like hold their spirituality, maybe a way to say it. And so he's definitely been that for me. And one thing I love about Jason is he's just very honest and authentic and what you see is what you get. And so, so excited to have you on here today, Jason. I can't believe we haven't had you on here already. Well, thank you. I love what you all do at OnSite, and I love the podcast, uh, Big Listener. And uh, Lindsay, you, you know I think the world of you, but I'm really thankful to be here today. Yeah. yeah. I am so excited to be joining in on your guys' conversation. Um, I have heard lots of great things about you, Jason. And so for our listeners, would you just kind of give us a snapshot of uh, who you are. We talk at OnSite a lot about being a human being, not a human doing. So aside from the what you do, who are you, Jason? Uh, great question. Um, well, I'm a son and a brother and a friend and friendship lives like family for me. Mm-hmm. And so um, a lot of the relationships that give me the greatest sense of joy and meaning are friends and even their little ones who call me Uncle Jay these days. A, a number of them are in Nashville, Tennessee, which is one of the many reasons Fine. Nashville has my heart. Um I'm a student who has a lot of questions still, who also does uh, a lot of teaching, but mostly that gets energized by the things I'm still trying to figure out. 
That's a great description. Jason, that sort of reminded me of one of the things that you talked about at the beginning of your book, your disclaimers. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. You've got a new book out that's called When the World Breaks. And I loved at the beginning, you sort of lay out several disclaimers. And one of which is like that you're only sort of like an expert in your own experience. And I feel like I struggle sometimes everybody's got so many answers these days of like or ways to do it and it just felt like I could trust you because you know that like that that you're an expert in in yourself and your experience and not trying to be an expert in everything else Uh, so I appreciated that but I'd love to hear sort of your heart behind those disclaimers Uh and several of them just sort of felt like, oh, yes, this is like the most important part is sort of laying out sort of what this book is not, what it is and who you are and who you're not. So, okay, that's funny you say that because I've thought about what excerpts from the book I would want to share and those disclaimers at the top of the list for me, which is strange because ordinarily you wouldn't think that disclaimers are the point. Right. But um, I've written a book about like suffering and hope and it works through the Beatitudes of Jesus's teachings in Matthew 5. And I think one reason I have these disclaimers, like you said, one is I'm not an expert in almost anything in this book except for my experience. Another is, you know, I'm a big fan of doing your work. I'm a, I'm a fan of psychology and taking your meds and showing up at treatment centers and going to recovery meetings. Like I'm, I'm a believer in all of that. And I'm not trying to displace those practices with a book about like spirituality and suffering. Um, yeah. one, one reason I had to write those disclaimers was honestly to, to give myself permission to write the book. Because I think if I had not put those yeah. in the first chapter, I would have had a real kind of, I would have been wrestling with the self-conscious awareness of that. To me, like everything in it is, is kind of pointing at mysteries that, to say that mysteries doesn't mean that we can't name them and it doesn't mean that we can't swim in them. But it does mean like there, there's got to be a healthy kind of awareness that we're open-handed about this. And at best, these conclusions are provisional. It's like, this is how I get it today. And if it helps point you in a direction of your own healing, amazing. And if I've got any of this wrong, please don't think I thought for sure that I had any of it right. You know, um, yeah. there's convictions that drive the book for sure. But the, the book's wrestling with things that are above my pay grade, whether it's loss and grief and quite actually where the people we love go when we lose them, or whether it's some of the big systemic and social stuff that we're facing right now, whether it's how on earth to build a place that isn't actually unjust for people who don't look like me. These are big, gnarly questions, and I think it's really powerful to wrestle with them, but I wouldn't want to presume to stand above them um, with all the right answers. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I feel like that would be like one of my challenges if I was writing a book, too, is like this idea that it's like almost trying to concretize like where I am today, but like realizing that I'm growing and evolving, and if I don't say that I'm growing and evolving and I might not hold this the same way in a year or 10 years or, you know, at the end of my lifetime, then, then it, then it would be a little flawed sort of in its ability. So I I just really appreciated those disclaimers and think you should use them in promotion for sure. (laughs) Nice. There's also that thing, right, where there's, there's enough pastors. And I would say in my experience, this is not most pastors, but there are enough pastors who are trying to pass themselves off as just absolute experts on matters that I don't think any human being is. So I think when you wear that hat too, vocationally, you even you, you have an even higher obligation to kind of clarify what you really think you're qualified to do here and then what you're not, you know. 
I love that idea of mystery. And I, as someone who really values and has a tendency to lean into wanting certainty and clarity in a lot of areas of my life, I think um, those disclaimers were very encouraging for me. And I wonder from a practical standpoint, I think anywhere we look today, people want us to have a fully formed opinion. So what does practically that wrestling look like? And how do you give yourself permission to say, like Lindsay was saying, I hope that my opinion evolves and changes a little bit in the next couple of years. I hope I think about this at a deeper level when you are writing and doing what you're doing vocationally. How do you sit in and practically do that wrestling? Yeah, so for me, it's been helpful to, um, I I both want to have some stakes in the ground Mm -hmm. and I want to have some freedom because I think one without the other, at least for me, is hard to navigate. So, you know, I'm speaking from Christian tradition. I'm a a pastor. but what I, my understanding of my own tradition is that it, it's more of a center than a boundary. Mm, and so I think um, from that center, and, and for me, like right down the middle of that is actually Jesus and what he said and did. And what I, I, mean, I mean, what he actually said and did and not just the way that Jesus can become a mascot for anybody at doing anything these days. But I mean, the actual content of his life and teachings. Um, so for me, that could be a nice stake in the ground, a, a center. But it doesn't feel like a boundary, meaning I think like from that um I mean, to me, the irony of Jesus and the beauty of him is in a lot of ways, I see him, the actual content of his life is actually propelling you outward then, right, um, to cross boundaries of different kinds of experiences. And so in my spirit, in my life, in my practice, I find that um, there are ways of coming back to that core, but I don't feel that it's then meant to police the boundaries of who I learned from mm. and what kind of experiences I consider valid or because really, I think, you know, the trick is to be curious about every kind of experience and not to judge it or rule it out. But um, I find history to be helpful, actually. In, in my experience, yeah. like if I go back beyond the last 50 years of my tradition or the last 100 years, and I go back, say, 1700 years or whatever, I actually find these really expansive, sometimes kind of mystical voices that have always been considered part of the tradition, but mm-hmm. who make up, they make a lot of room for me to wrestle with the stuff I'm wrestling with in the book. So that's a big part of it, too. That's good. I'm curious for, you know, on-site is faith inclusive. And it's one of the things, honestly, that I really appreciated about my time at on-site was just that because of the inclusivity that you had people from other beliefs and backgrounds, and there was really room for me to show up and be completely honest in a way that I hadn't been honest in my faith tradition. But I feel like you do such a good job of like holding space for all people. I but and I also know that we probably have list, listeners that heard, you know, like you say that you're a pastor and just automatically kind of bristled at sure. the mention of your profession and your faith yeah. tradition. Yep. And so yep. I'm just curious, like, because like how do you sort of hold space for people that have had wounding in the church or wounding by the church? And also, like, continue to, like, want to pursue some sort of spirituality, you know? That's a great question. To me, anything I say or sort of enact publicly, uh, it's, it's got to be true. So it's, it's got to be downstream from some upstream commitments. And so I think, like, as a, as a church community, um, whether it's people who have been hurt by Christian structures and institutions and the people in power in those places— so like on that, for example, I think the first question is, are we actually building a community? 
that mm. takes that possibility seriously. And that's that that might be like in meetings behind the scenes and in our leadership structure. But the work starts upstream, I think, where are, are we actually trying to create a place and learn from those experiences, take them seriously and honor the fact that even churches that didn't mean to can end up becoming places that can be really hurtful and manipulative and, and abusive. So upstream, are we building differently so that downstream, when you experience our community, is it authentically moving in a different direction? Um, I think on a personal level, I think I can't like get up on stage and fake whether I have met God and people of other traditions and of very different experiences from my own. But if I'm living in that relationship world, it can kind of come out more authentically, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, even one of our, this is not about other traditions, but one of our, so our church has, you know, kind of the regular public language that we use to describe our community. But we also have these kind of like in and out burger secret menu mantras that if you talk to us long enough, you'll learn about them. And one of them is Southland City Church, a great place to lose your faith. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of cheeky, um, but we kind of mean it on two fronts. One is there are versions of faith that need to be lost and left behind if they're hurting the world, right? If they become a cover for things that are harmful, then let's lose that faith, right? Also, we just genuinely believe that any person with a brain and a heart is probably going to go through different seasons of evolving belief and unbelief. And um, it seems really cruel that you would lose your community when you lose your faith. And so we work really hard to honor that. And one way of doing that is I've got to be honest about my own experience of loss of faith and renovation of faith and days when um, I'm not even sure what parts of this I can say I deeply believe and days when I feel full of belief, you know. Uh, But again, I think it it has to have integrity with your life. Like you can't just pretend those things for other people. Um, So most of the work for us is upstream. And then I hope that whether we're preaching on a Sunday or I'm talking to you on a podcast, I hope. I hope that comes through from the life that we're trying to live. That's really beautiful. I think just hearing you say that, um, Lindsay and I are both just nodding a lot. Um, And that concept of losing your community when you lose your faith, I think is really interesting. And so I'd love to hear you speak more to that of how do you build a community around a central belief while also leaving room for other ideas? And then how do you build community beyond just your church community? I think that's a question that I have a lot and I wrestle with personally. And I know we've talked a lot about on this podcast of how do we build a robust community of people who don't look and think like us? Um, And you sound like someone who does that. And so I'd love to hear just what does it look like for you? I'm working on it. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. On the church side, you know, a couple of thoughts. uh, And I know, again, I love that your listeners are probably coming from a really wide spectrum on religious affiliation. But uh, the idea that a church is a community of people who all believe the same things is actually kind of a modern idea. Yeah. It's it's hard to imagine that there would be other ways for a church to experience belonging. But there are. I mean, another way that you could define a church is a group of people who all receive the same sacraments each week. People who, who come to the table together and who, you know, at our church, we say that like when we practice the Eucharist, which is one of the church's, you know, rituals or practices, we say um, this table is for anybody who wants to be at the table with Jesus. We don't care what you believe. We don't care how you behave. The table is for people who want to be at the table with Jesus. So you could say Southland City Church is a community of people who come to the table together, which would be very different than saying we're people who all co-sign the same beliefs together. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one example. I also think... For the record, the Bible is a remarkable book in that on one page it calls us to certain forms of belief, and on the very next page it expresses in a really profound form the experience of losing those same beliefs. Um, just read the Psalms, for example, or the book of Job, or 
It's full of mystery. It's not good. The Bible's not good propaganda. If its point was to get us to all agree on things, <laughs> it just doesn't work. Really. It's never it's good, good at that. I think it's a remarkable mirror of our own sort of inner journey and, and the world that we build together for better or for worse. I think it can inspire us and indict us and work on us. Yeah. Even with the book and the Beatitudes, I, I hear Jesus blessing very strange experiences. Like his first blessing is for the poor in spirit. And there's a lot of ways to take that, but I, I kind of take it to mean the kind of the evacuation of your soul that happens when you when you suffer. Yeah, and that's the first blessing. And he says, "Yours is the kingdom of heaven," which is like highest praise for him. He's he's saying, "You're you're all the way in. Like you are in in the heart of the action of the divine life in the world." When you wake up one day and discover that that your soul has has been robbed of hope, faith, belief, joy, love, purpose, vision. Um, so even that's kind of a paradox that doesn't work along the simple lines of like, agree on these things, believe these things, and then we're a part of this thing together. So good. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this conversation with our friend Jason. I wanted to pop in and talk briefly about one of my favorite onsite experiences, the Living Center program. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you already know about our flagship program from which we got our name. The Living Center program is a six-day workshop led by our expert therapist who will guide you in exploring, deconstructing, and rewriting your narratives. Our beautiful campuses and retreat-like settings allow you a break from your daily distractions and provide you the clarity needed to reestablish congruence between your feelings, values, and actions so that you can live a more intentional, meaningful, and fulfilled life. This world-renowned group experience is specifically designed to meet you right where you are. If you've been listening for a while and wondering if this experience might be right for you, I would love for you to connect with our admissions team. You can call them at 1-800-341-7432 or learn more at experienceonsite.com. All right, friends, back to the interview. Your book. When the world breaks, the impetus, you mentioned that it sort of is sort of unpacking the Beatitudes and the impetus is just like life (laughs) right now and just being hard and the grief and the suffering that we all find ourselves in. And today it feels bigger for some reason than ever, but what sort of led you to writing this book at this time? Yeah, the book's been with me for years in terms of a a concept. And where that came from kind of explains why now. Where it came from, in 2010, I took my first trip over to Israel-Palestine, and this was sort of a conflict education experience. And so I was in a little little cohort of five, and we spent about a week and a half uh, just sitting with Israelis and Palestinians and hearing story after story of their own experience uh, through the lens of, of the conflict there. And um, it, it was absolutely harrowing. Um, I, th- I think I went over there expecting a kind of academic encounter. But, you know, a normal day might have been in the morning, we're sitting with a bereaved mother, uh, an Israeli mother whose son was um, shot and killed by a Palestinian sniper when they were wearing a uniform. And then, you know, an hour later, you're sitting with a Palestinian father whose 12-year-old daughter was shot and killed while they were driving to the market one day in their car Mm. when their vehicles was mistaken for that of the terrorists. And you stack those experiences up. And um, about three or four days in, I was was beyond broken. I was at a point of despair that I felt really dark. 
And it was kind of right there in that moment where I kept thinking, like, there's no way this gets better. Mm. It just feels too entrenched. There's too much pain ricocheting around over here. And I got to a very despairing place. And right in that moment, we happened to take a trip to a, a church in the West Bank where a really well-respected Palestinian elder named Elias Shakur, he's a priest and a community leader there. His church had these blessings from Matthew 5 engraved and because of the frame of mind I was in, I kind of heard them differently and I ignored them for years. Um, they weren't a part of my, every every person who like reads the Bible has their favorite texts and then the ones they ignore, which is problematic. And uh, <laughs> this was on the list of texts that I ignore. Yeah. So anyway. Why had you ignored them? I think they didn't, I, they felt so, I didn't know what the hell to do with them. Yeah. You know, I, I think um, I also, Though I think the only way I had heard them preached was a kind of carrot stick theology. Like, um, you know, here's the reward. Right? God, Jesus blesses this kind of person, so try to be this kind of person. But then, wait, but then mm. try to mourn? Like, that feels weird and manipulative, right? Yeah. Try to be poor in spirit. Um, so I couldn't figure it out. And then I think what I learned there is you don't, you, you don't really figure them out. They, they kind of figure you out. They, they, they meet you and they work on you. And um, anyway, after the trip, as they were just kind of rattling around with me, it's almost like Jesus is describing this terrain, right? This, this kind of terrain of experience, like poverty of spirit and mourning. It's like a landscape. And I'm like, I feel like I've been on this land before. This, like, this terrain feels familiar. And what, it, what I slowly began to realize was that in particular, uh, two really difficult experiences in my life on a personal level felt so familiar to what I'd felt over in the West Bank. And it all felt like what Jesus was describing. For me, it was uh, a really acute season of depression in college that had to do with some traumatic childhood memories. And then it was also walking um, for a number of years with a really close loved one in addiction, like a really, really scary, um, destructive mm. stretch of addiction. And it began to sort of connect to, like this kind of big geopolitical stuff and the, the really, really personal stuff, childhood trauma. It all kind of took me to the same landscape and it felt like Jesus was describing it. So I began thinking about it and writing about it a bit. And I have this title, When the World Breaks, and it's been with me for like, 10 years. And, yeah. um, and then after we got into the, the early days of the pandemic experience, um, you kind of think, oh, I've been working on a book called When the World Breaks. And uh, whether it was the pandemic or whether it was the murder of George Floyd and all the political stuff, it felt like um, it was high time to follow through on it. So here we are. So here we are. Yeah. You referenced just now just the college experience of depression and the impetus of that was sort of like remembering some childhood moments yeah. that um, you describe really vividly in the book of sort of being at a concert and then all of a sudden you're transported back in time to some really hard moments, probably <laughs> understanding yeah. that yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of your childhood. But I think that for a lot of people, there's a lot of fear around like what they don't know about their past. You know, yeah. I know that when I was like thinking about attending on site, I was like very scared that there was something that I would uncover that I just had blocked away. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which it's so amazing in some ways that our bodies self-protect in ways that yes. we can yeah. sort of siphon off memories that are harmful so that we can survive and keep going until we have the room and the tools to begin to process them. But I just am curious about how you got through that time and how did you take care of yourself when you have this moment of sort of remembering and just depression and 
suffering from things that yeah. had happened? Yeah, that's a good question. It, um, that all broke in my senior year of high school. So then the, the thing right in front of me was college. And yeah. uh, one of the big impacts was I ended up changing my college decision. I was going to go to a big state school. And in hindsight, I think for my state of mind in that season, that would have been really bad. I, think, I just think it would have been easy to get kind of lost and swallowed up. So I ended up at this. Um, Did you tell someone that like that was sort of an re- like going on and a reason for changing trajectory or did you kind of just do that on your own? No, I kind of did that on my own in the early part of that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think the first one of the first people I actually talked to about it was one of the people I met at the college, one of the administrator student life people I met at the college they ended up going to. So one benefit I had is I actually spent those years in a pretty safe space. Um, hmm. It's Christian college, which in some ways felt really parochial and claustrophobic for me, but in other ways, yeah. it was a real, it was a real grace. It was a real protective layer for me that I was in a pretty good place there. Um, bringing people along and, and, and telling them about it was really important. Mm-hmm. Going to therapy was really important, even though there's that classic thing, right? Where it's like the more you work on it, the, the scarier it gets at first. Yeah. yeah. And so for me, it was a lot of two steps forward, one step back. You know, faith was a big part of that journey for me, although not in a way that, like, I don't have, like, this power testimony. I'm like, well, I prayed about it, and then, you know, like, it was not, right? I had to do the yeah. work. Faith didn't faith didn't mm-hmm. allow me to sidestep the work. It was a companion in the work, um, although a lot of days faith was mostly not only am I mad at what happened, but I'm mad at God for letting it happen. So there, there's yeah. ways that faith may be amplified. Yeah. 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 Music was a huge part of my journey through all of that art, big part of my journey through all of that. And ultimately, I, you know, I chose to hospitalize myself when it got to a point of mo- when it became most acute. And that yeah. time in the hospital for me, mostly I think what it did was it just put me in a place where there was nothing else to do hmm. but turn to the grief that had been like trying to work its way through my system for four and a half years. Yeah. And um, it, it almost physically overwhelmed me, right? Grief has, you know, the actual physical act of grieving but at least there in the hospital, there was nothing else to do and there was no way for it to be truly harmful for me. So yeah, it was community, it was art, it was faith in some strange ways. And then ultimately it was putting myself in a place where I'd be safe for the hardest part of it. Mm. Yeah. How did you know to do that? I mean, I think about myself at college age of like, of like, yeah, not knowing. The hospital part? Yeah, the hospital part. I I don't know how to tell that part of the story because the truth is I, I, I did this thing for a, a couple of years. The worst it got, I would like wake up. You ever like injure physically and you wake up in the morning and you you check your body to see if the injury is still there? You maybe yes, pull your yeah, lower back or whatever. Yeah. yeah. For me, it's my lower back like once a month. I wake yeah, up the next day and I'm like, is my back okay? So I would do that with this emotional um, injury, yeah. you know? And um, all I know is I woke up one day and I checked in, and it, it was still there, this cloud of despair. Yeah. And I, I kind of feel like I went into autopilot. I just, I remember packing my bag. I remember driving to my, or walking to my truck on campus. I remember calling a few friends and I was in a state of intensity that they, there was no way for them to help me over the phone. And I just remember putting my car in drive. And the next thing I remember is pulling into this hospital. Hmm. To this day, I've probably got three different interpretations of, of what went down there. Yeah. And I know that other people have a day like that and it doesn't end like that. And I'm, yeah, that makes me really tender. Um, yeah. Hmm. Yes, yeah, so I don't. I don't have a. I don't. I don't have a. Well, you know. Thank a, you for sharing. Yeah, I, I appreciate it, and I just think, yeah, I'm so glad that your day ended the way it did. And yeah, me too. We can 
all learn from you and hear from your experience. And I think you normalizing those days. Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. just so helpful for all of us that have them, you know, to yeah. varying degrees. Yeah. If I could, if I could shout anything from the rooftop, it's like, A, it's more normal and human than we know. It's just often hidden. And B, the the thing that you think will ultimately destroy you, like, it's okay to just put yourself in a place where it can consume you without destroying you. You know, yeah. it's, it's almost like there's two forms of letting go and there's a form of letting go that at the end of it, you're still here, you know? Yeah. And then there's another form of letting go that you're not. Um, and I think they both feel like letting go in some ways. But yeah, I, I want to shout from the rooftops that you can let go and let yourself fall into a place of safety and come out on the other side. I remember after doing the Living Center program, I was meeting with a therapist and kind of relaying my experience. And she was telling me like sort of about that I had to let some stuff go, you know, and I was like, how do you do that? You know, and yes. and it was like I kind of couldn't fathom what you're talking about. But the idea of just not juggling the weightiness of whatever was going on at the time and like just like letting the balls fall. I think that is a really powerful way of looking at it that I think that's so many of us work is realizing that we can loosen our control and not be everything to everybody and yes. take care of ourselves and like hunker down for the season and that's just right. nurture ourselves. So yeah, that's beautiful. And yeah. Jason, thank you for giving us that gift. I really did feel like it was a gift early on in the conversation. You talked about, you know, sometimes when you realize those things and you start doing that work and you start asking those questions and looking at it, it gets harder before it gets easier. Yes. And I think what I took away from your book was just this permission and this almost encouragement and normalizing of, hey, paradoxically, the way out is through. Yes. And we think we can't look at it. And you also talk about this screaming voice inside of you that's like, I know this isn't right, but I don't know what to do with that. And so I'm really grateful that your your day ended the way that it did. And I just want to echo what you were saying and encourage anyone that's listening today saying, I'm not like, is it just me? Am I the only one that just feels this off feeling or this person who checks in every morning and says, okay, this is my normal, but it's still there. Like even yeah. the way you described it was such a physical feeling of this emotional weight. And so I'm just really grateful for that uh, normalizing way that you put that and, and shared about an experience. Um, I remember when I, I talk about this a lot on the podcast, but I decided, okay, it's time to get on anxiety meds. I had just been carrying this anxiety in my body for my whole life. And so some of the questions they ask me, I was like, that, yeah, that's my normal. And I think my normal is not what everyone else has. And I, I want more. And yeah. so, yeah. I just, um, I'm grateful for you giving us that gift. But I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about the experience between suffering and its connection to hope and our like looking and leaning into the inner experience of our suffering in the hope of finding hope, if that makes sense. Yeah. Kind of, I know it's a lot of what your book's about, but I'd love to hear that. No, thanks. I'd love that. Um, I think there's a version of hope that proves really brittle, which is like, I'm just going to grit and grind and I'm going to, I'm going to choose to have a good attitude, which I'm all for. That's a great life skill, right? Um, yeah, make it till you make it. Yeah. But, but we're talking about, um, in this case, you know, 
the stuff that, that really breaks you, whether it's yeah. personal or geopolitical. Um, and there comes mm-hmm. a point where I think that version of hope rings kind of hollow. R- regardless of where people are at, like on faith or Jesus, you can observe the, the way he's talking in these Beatitudes. The first few Beatitudes, he's speaking to people who are just going through the worst and darkest things about being human. Mm. When he talks about yeah. the poverty of spirit, those who mourn, there's a, there's a tidal wave of grief, by the way, coursing through our world in the wake of the last few years, and we don't know what to do with it. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness, that's where I talk about the screaming inside. Um, for me, it was especially this loved one in, in addiction and seeing them self-destruct and just the screaming inside. Um, saying it should not be this way. So he starts He starts by speaking to people who are going through those things. But then by the end, he has this um, blessing for the persecuted. And I'll resist the urge to like, you know, deliver the whole chapter. But my interpretation of that is um, persecution is when evil comes after you. Mm. And I don't, I don't think that evil is an unlimited resource. I think evil is a limited resource. Mm. And if we're speaking in terms of warfare, if you have limited ammo, you don't just spray the field indiscriminately. You 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 use it to come after anyone who's a threat to your project. Mm-hmm. And, and the last blessing Jesus gives is for people whose lives are so good and powerful and, and whose lives are moving the world toward healing that the things that try to break the world will come after them. And so mm-hmm. I hear Jesus beginning by blessing these like sad sufferers, right? And just a few sentences later, He's, he's giving a blessing for the kind of people whose lives are um, potent and powerful for good and for healing in the world. And there's no indication that he switches audiences. It's not like the, the first few blessings are for one group and the next few are for, the, for another. So th- there's some kind of arc there. Mm-hmm. And a lot of interpreters over the centuries have observed that, that the movement is something like, at first, he's, he's going to help you stop pretending that you're not suffering. Yeah. So if he blesses you in a, in a poverty in your own heart... Um, then you don't have to pretend that you're not impoverished by what has happened. You could just abide it, right? And same with the the, the mourning and grief, right? Um, if you've lost something and he blesses you and you're grieving, then you don't have to run from your grieving. You could just turn toward it, right? And I think what happens is when we suffer, when the world breaks, we want so badly to feel powerful in the face of that that mm-hmm. we actually turn toward all these really counterfeit attempts at power and they, they end up just breaking the world further, right? Whether it's like, you know, I don't want to feel that, so I'm going to numb out. Yeah. And all of a sudden we're in an addiction pattern, right? Or I don't like what happened to me, so I'm going to punch back. So now we're in a cycle of repetitive violence, right? So it's like he's yeah. trying to dismantle all that reactive energy and all that running energy. And it's like he's teaching us. You, you could actually, it's like, I don't think Jesus is, an, is a fan of the circumstances that cause us to suffer. I don't think he's calling us to be passive in the face of that stuff, whether it's systemic or personal, we should address it, we should fight it. But I do think he, he's saying, but the inner experience of your suffering, it's already with you, whether you like it or not. Mm. So face it, don't run from it. And when you face it, ironically, paradoxically, you begin to come out the other side as the kind of person who can do some real healing work. And then he can call you merciful, and then he can call you a peacemaker. And then he can call you pure in heart, the kind of person who sees the divine life everywhere. And then he gives you a blessing for the days when you're going to be persecuted, because he knows that when we do that inner work, we become the kind of people who have potent lives, and we can put some things back together. Mm. Um, That's the arc that I see. Hope not as a feeling so much as, first, you know, like to me, some of my greatest hope is 
I went into the hospital. You know, it got darker than I could have ever possibly imagined, but it turned out there weren't any demons lurking in the darkness. Mm. I felt like there were boogeymen in the darkness. And then you go all the way into it and you find out there aren't, you know? Um, so, yeah, another way I've heard people say that I really like and I have it in my book is um, our strategies for hold thing, holding things together end up being the very things that keep us from being put back together. Mm. Yeah. And so you kind of, you kind of got to let, let it fall apart for a minute. But then on the other side, you find out that it was never going to, you might fall apart, but you're not going to, it won't be the end. Break. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, that line you just said about the strategies that hold us together actually hold us back. I quoted that to Lindsay in our prep. I was like, I really love this line. I think it's really beautiful. And so I love that you you said that. And I just um, was really encouraged by the whole thing. The way you just kind of laid that out, I think from a bad theology standpoint and from some of my baggage from my upbringing, I hear you say, you know, blessed are the persecuted and they're the people who have the potentness on their life. And I think I carried this message of like, there's some bad theology that says, like God's strongest soldiers get the hardest battles or whatever that That's is, right. you know? Right. Yeah. Um, totally. And so I, I'm grateful for the way that you laid that out and just the looking into healing in places we don't expect. So that's really good. One of the things you mentioned in there was the numbing out. Um, and in your book, you talk about uh, praying a prayer about like living the life we're living. And I yes. wondered if you would just talk a little bit about that and maybe some of the ways um, that you see us choosing to not show up in our life and live and what that, what the impact of that is. I love that. Uh, Padre Gotuma is a poet and um, a peacemaker. Uh, he comes from the context of Northern Ireland. And now you listeners might know him from the On Being project, Krista Tippett's whole world. He's a part oh, of yes. that. Yes, I love On Being, yeah. so good. Yeah, so he's part of that world now creating with them. And he wrote a book of, of, of prayer from his time with Corey Mila. And the reason I was drawn to it is uh, Corey Mila is a, is a reconciling community project in Northern Ireland. And so they're in the trenches every day of this really important work. And there's a daily prayer um, in the book and it has this one line. And it, it's, it's one of those lines that's either, it, it, it's, it sounds so plain that you m- might miss how profound it is, but the line is just this, we will live the life we are living. Mm. And the, that those words have fallen on me heavier and deeper every time I come back to them because I think I keep discovering for myself and then in the community I'm a part of how, how so much of the harm and the, and the, and the hurt comes from not being able to, to pray that prayer and live it, you know, yeah. um, the lives that we were living include with them pain. Yeah. You know, and I don't mean like in a nihilistic way. I think life is joy and beauty, but also it's pain and it's all those hard feelings that come with being human um, in relationships and in the larger political and global world that we're living in. And so um, I see all of these escape paths to, to not live the lives that we are living. And it's, it can be substance abuse. It could just be Netflix every night. Um, I see it in some people whose schedules are so busy that there's never a moment to sink down into the emotional reality of their life. I see it in bad religion all the time. Mm-hmm. When um, preaching and, and practices are actually a way of avoiding your reality rather than coming face to face with it, you know, it's that kind of like, sometimes called spiritual bypassing, right? When you yeah. use a, a faith framework to ignore the fact that you're in pain or that somebody you love is in pain or that you're in friction or conflict. 
And then I think, I think you all get to see it a lot in your work. I know sometimes I do too, where the brave and beautiful, you sense, you actually sense the awakening energy in a person. Mm-hmm. You sense the emerging power in a person when they decide to stop avoiding their life and start living it. And that yeah. almost always includes facing some hard things. Mm, that's good. We talk a lot about medicators um, at onsite yeah. and we just define it as whatever you use externally to turn down your internal noise. Oh, I like that. And so wow. many of the things you were saying is like, we just wrote an article about sneaky medicators and mm. we talked about busyness. We talked about uh, serving others. Uh, we talked about working and just things that often externally to the world seem good. So it's not even just the addiction. It's not even just the, um, you know, gambling or whatever, yeah, substance yeah. and abuse. It's the normal things that are often rewarded that are keeping us from experiencing and living present in the life that we're living so I love that of how do we, even in, you were talking about being nihilistic of it's not just pain. If we turn off the pain, we also turn off the joy. Yes. And so on the other side of that, there's a consequence to those actions that we're not experiencing as much. You're not feeling the pain. It'll catch up eventually, but we're not feeling the pain today, but we're also not feeling the depth of the joy and the hope and the other experiences we could have. So yes, so good. Uh, I, tried I love that. it. Say it again. Oh. Preach it. That's good. Preach it. Um, so as we kind of wind this out, one of the things we often ask is a practice that keeps you centered. So Jason, what is a practice that keeps you centered? Here's one I'm working on and I'm not good at it. I have a spiritual director who's been helping me move toward this. It's really basic. I have a little timer on my phone. It's a five-minute lap timer. I do three five-minute rounds. I sit quiet for the first five minutes and I just try to be present with God, with myself, and with the world around me. Um, but but no, no, no content, just presence. Next five minutes is I get to just dump anything, anything. There's no order to it. There's no should in it. It's just, if I'm pissed about it, I get to bring it up. If I'm, if I long for it, I get to bring it up. It sets the middle five minutes. And then the last five minutes returns to that practice of presence. That's just meant to be sort of without content. And the first time I started doing it, I thought my little timer wasn't working. I thought surely the first five minutes is up. And I looked down, it had been 32 seconds. That's <laughs> uh, <laughs> just torture. Yeah. Yeah. So you're so, writing yeah. in the middle, the middle section, you're writing, or you're just like in your head? Just in my head, you, trying okay. to kind of bring to mind um, the idea of the presence of God. It's a prayer practice. Um, yeah. With, without a lot of should in it. But I usually sit on the floor, like there's something about sit on the floor that's different than a chair. And yeah, it's just five minutes of try to gather myself into um, an act of presence. And then five minutes of, no filtering, no shooting, just whatever comes up that I can sort of bring to mind in what I perceive to be the presence of God. And then five more minutes of, of just trying to be present without content. And um, Does the middle uh, five minutes go fast for you? Yeah, the middle five minutes flies. Yeah, middle five minutes flies. And then um, it's good that the timer rings again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I love it. Well, Jason, thank you so much. I always learn so much when I get to talk to you. And I really appreciate your vulnerability today. Yeah, my privilege. It means a lot to be in a space with you guys. I, like I said, I'm very, very grateful for the work you all are doing. And I keep sending friends your way. And um, we, we, need more, we need more of what you all do in the world. So thank you. You too. Hey, Jason. Everyone go out and get your book August 1st, but it's on sale now. That's right. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. 
And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.